Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 16. We're going to read from verse 17 to 20. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 20. Let me read the Word of God. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We're looking at this last chapter of Romans. We've studied the opening words. We've seen that there is a series of greetings from the Apostle Paul to people he's not met yet in a place he's not been yet. And these greetings are warm. They give an insight both into Paul's mind and heart and into the nature of the people who were close to him or known by him, people whom whom he admired, both men and women he had worked with, and that he knew whose work uh, he knew. And not only are there greetings, there are also warnings, and we read those warnings from verses 17 to verse 19. Uh, Warnings against people who cause divisions and offenses in the church. They do this by Good words at fluent speech, flattering speech, which they use in order that they might deceive the hearts, especially of the guileless. That is, the people who just are accepting of things and uh, perhaps not discerning. Dr. Barnhouse notes that very frequently such people appeal to philosophy and tradition and corrupt the Word of God by doing so. We saw that they caused divisions by laying alongside the Christian truth their own opinions. They put their opinions alongside Christian truth and appear to merge them both so that you only understand Christian truth if you accept their opinions regarding it. In this way, the effect is to unsettle good people, causing them to doubt what they're hearing from those authorized to teach them. And... uh, And very often they use the Bible in a wrong way. They proof text. That is, they take a a caption or a a snatch out of a verse and they use that to support their argument. Like the argument that the Bible gives us for there being no God. Did you know that? The Bible says there is no God. Go and use that tomorrow morning. And tell them that it's in the Bible. Of course, the the reality is, of course, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And here's a lesson for your reading of Scripture in your small group, group, that a text without a context becomes a proof text, or a pretext, rather, for a proof text. And proof texts are bad Paul says, avoid such people. 
Be innocent with regard to evil and wise with regard to good. In other words, what he's calling for is for us as God's people to be discerning and not gullible. So when Paul is writing this letter, he begins by authorizing Phoebe, who is the bearer of the letter. He gives them his uh, 100% approval as she comes to the church to read this to the assembled people there. That's very important so that they understand that this letter hasn't come out of thin air and that she is not speaking on her own authority, but with, with all the authority of the apostle of Jesus Christ behind her. But there are other people who will come to the church that are not authorized by the apostle of Jesus Christ. These people come to the church or arise from within her, and specifically, they're liable to teach doctrine that isn't right. Either it's an unorthodox doctrine, such as, for example, if you teach that there are two justifications— that you get right with God now, here and now, by faith, but that you have to be also acquitted by God on the last day by your works. So today you can say there's no condemnation to me because I have faith in Christ Jesus, but you still have to wait till the judgment day to see whether your good works are enough to get you in. That's being taught in evangelical circles today. Or... You add to faith. In the Bible it says, faith alone saves. Even Pope Benedict said that Luther was right to add the word alone there, because that's the sense of the passage. Faith alone saves. Why? Because you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. But a new book has come up from a popular Christian writer in America here, in which he says, faith, the faith that saves is a faith that is not, doesn't stand alone, but rather is, has to be accompanied by a love for God and a love for Jesus and, and a desire to have Him as your own and so forth. In other words, it's expanding faith from faith in Christ alone to faith that does some other things. Now, these other things are things we look for after you become a Christian. Love for Jesus is something that grows as you grow in your Christian life. But if you, want, if you start adding love for Jesus at the beginning of the Christian life, when you don't know Him and you're simply believing on Him for your salvation and doing what our confession or our catechism says you should do, and that is receive Him and rest on Him. That's saving faith. Receiving Him and resting on Him not adding other stuff in too early in the process. You will not be saved by your love for Jesus. You'll be saved by your faith in Jesus. Your love for Jesus makes it wonderful. But your faith in Jesus is what saves you in the end. Or there are those within the church who teach that within the one indivisible nature of God, there are eternal relations of authority and submission. The Father eternally being the authority, the Son eternally being in submission, and then those two elements then applied to human relationships and even relationships within marriage. What those people who teach that don't understand is 
Now, once you divide God up like that, you no longer have one God, you have three gods, each with three wills, three consciousnesses, and not one God with one will and one consciousness, such as we have in Christianity. Or they may come with good doctrine. But along with that good doctrine, they have a particular emphasis. So they have good teaching, but they have an, a, a, an emphasis, or they put weight on particular aspects of Christian teaching, and they make something that is incidental or something that is of less importance, of far greater importance than it merits. That also is false teaching. Now, the apostle, in those earlier verses that I read this morning, tells us that these kind of teachers serve their own appetites. Literally, they serve their own belly. They're self-serving. The New Testament says a lot about people who are in it for something else. They're in the ministry for some other reason. John the Apostle, for example, in his third letter, 3 John, verse 9, tells us that he wrote to this little church that he's writing to, uh, but that a man called Diotrephes, the big leader in the church, Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, was the old translation, who loves to be first. Diotrephes will have nothing to do with him, with an apostle of Jesus Christ. He thinks he's more important even than an apostle of Jesus Christ. Even those who seem on the surface at least to be genuinely interested in the cause of God and his church can eventually be shown, as this man Diotrephes is shown, to be in it for other things. Maybe for the fame, if he's well gifted, financial gain, or for followers, usually for followers. They like disciples. They like those who hang on their every word, and they cultivate that and damage the church. So what does false teaching or imprecise teaching or unbalanced teaching do? Paul says it deceives people. Deception is part of the devil's playbook. In the Garden of Eden, Eve was deceived by Satan himself. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. That is, they look like believers. They sound like believers. They walk and they talk like believers. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. You don't know they're ferocious wolves until the outcome starts to happen. Until you see the way they're going, by their fruit, you will know them. Now, all these warnings in the Bible, I think, shake us up from time to time. I know that they shake up some of you because you've told me that, and I understand more than you realize. Perhaps your view of Christianity has been shaken up right now. Perhaps you thought or had been led to believe that Christianity would somehow or other, in the end, win and corner the market, hold the levers of power in the nation and in the world. And our study of the book of Revelation blew all those illusions away. Maybe you thought 
that Christianity would be a kind of elixir of life to you, that it would immediately dislodge all your demons and provide perfect friendships, and that you would know constant happiness. But you don't. And then we read these warnings, and we discover that we are actually in a war zone, that our souls and the souls of those we love are in mortal danger. And we learn that if we try to deal with these things at a human level, if we think the issues are just about this person disagreeing with that person, or if we only change this way of doing it instead of doing it that way, that these human elements will actually resolve the problem, then we don't understand the greatness of the problem. That we're in a war zone. Paul has this wider conflict in view here. And it centers on the role of teaching in the church, whether it's about doctrine or Christian living or the church itself. Whenever we come across Christian teaching, it belongs to the supernatural, not the natural level. The devil has been cast out of heaven. We read that he's been chained and bound in the sense that the gospel, the good news of God, is not now limited to the Jews, but is for the whole world. And there are today billions of people in the world that testify to the fact that Satan is bound, he's in chains, he's being limited in frustrating the church's mission to the Gentile nations. That's obvious. It's obvious looking around our congregation. How many people from the Orient are part of our congregation? Because the gospel is supreme in Africa and increasingly supreme in Asia, particularly in in China and nations near there. So the gospel is expanding and God's word is proving powerful. Now, the devil, that does not mean that the devil's inactive. He's, un, he's active today in ways he was not active when Jesus was here. While Jesus was here and before it, he was keeping the nations in darkness. The people who walk in darkness have now seen a great light. His influence today is seen in false teaching. That's actually one of the major messages of the book of Acts. That the devil's primary action in the world today is in false teaching. And you see it in Jesus' little interaction with Simon Peter. You remember Jesus asked them what they believed. He asked Peter, what do you believe? What do you as Christians believe? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so then Jesus went on to say, okay, this is the kind of Christ I am. I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and after three days rise again. And Peter says, oh, no, you won't. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter did not become Satan at that moment, but he became like Satan at that moment. Whenever we disagree with Jesus... We do what Satan does. Whenever we reject Christian teaching, we do what Satan would do. He is a liar and a deceiver, and he loves to sow discord and division. 
because he's the adversary. Just about everywhere where the word Satan is used in the Bible, it has a definite article, although that's very seldom translated. The definite article is there. He is the Satan. He is the adversary, the enemy of God and of God's people. Brothers and sisters, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Now, that's the background then. Now to the text. It's a very short text, so don't worry. And it has three parts to it. First of all, the focus is on the God of peace, the God of peace. And you can see immediately from the context that I've tried to paint from you, for you, that this title is addressing the divisions in the church. He's called on us to be wise and ask questions about people who teach. Does the Bible actually teach what you say it teaches? Does it glorify Christ? Does it promote goodness and holiness? And now he puts these false teachers and us in the sphere and the context of God. What do we know about God? We know about God this, that God is infinite and invisible. That God is fully present everywhere in the universe without moving or movement because he doesn't move or move, have movement in himself. God is, is. He's not composed of anything, so can be everywhere. Paying attention to your heartbeat, paying attention to the firing of the synapses in your brain, paying attention to the coral reefs, paying attention to the universe out there and sustaining it all in existence. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? It means for these false teachers as well. It means he is the God who sees and knows. He sees and knows. You don't have to tell him anything because he knows exactly what's going on in your head right now. And he knows and sees everything about us. And these false teachers need to be reminded that they say they believe in God, but do they really believe in God? Do they really believe that God listens to them? Do they really believe that? It was once said of a group of university students at Edinburgh University Divinity Hall, those men know all there is to know about God except that he's listening to them. And that ultimately is the greatest, I think, issue that these false teachers and people who promote division in the church need to come to terms with. And so Paul speaks about then the God, the God of peace. Now we mustn't think for a moment that he's using the word peace in the negative here. Very often when we use the word peace, we mean the absence of of war. So there's no peace in Ukraine because there's war. But here Paul is using the word peace in its Hebrew sense. That's how it's used in the Bible and certainly about God. In the sense of shalom. And shalom means completeness. 
It means wholeness, all-roundedness, fullness. God is the God of peace. He's wholly positive. Jesus came to die in order to make peace. Jesus says to us and his disciples, my peace I give to you. And peace is a property of God. He enjoys absolute wholeness and completeness in himself and wants you to experience wholeness and completeness in yourself. This overruling power of God is essential because without it, his people would have no rest. But Paul says, the God of peace is in the battle. The God of peace rules and reigns in the midst of his enemies. The God of peace gives his people peace in the midst of their enemies. And so we should pray for peace. We should ask that God would bring peace to our church. We must do as the psalmist tells us, pray for the peace of God's Jerusalem, that is God's church. You know, it's a lack of prayer for the church that causes the devil freedom to attack us so. When I was growing up, the church I went to had morning and evening service on a Sunday. Wednesday evening, we would meet together for the prayer meeting, and at the prayer meeting, people would do business with God. People rarely talked about their sore toe or their granny's sore toe, But they talked about the enemies of God's church, and they talked about the preaching of the Word of God, and they prayed, and they prayed heaven uh, to heaven with uh, great enthusiasm, and they asked for God to bless the church. They asked for the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon God's church. Their great focus was, we as a church need to be praying as a church to God for the outpouring of His Spirit. And then along came small groups. I like small groups. I wrote a book about small groups that nobody's ever read. (laughs) To your great detriment, I have to say. So, and I was probably one of the first ministers in Scotland to introduce them to the church. But the problem is that prayer in small groups tends not to be about the church. It tends to be about ourselves and the group praying for the things that we've been praying for, perhaps for 10 years, praying for people that we, we love and know. And, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But we need to be praying for the church. And you need to be praying for the teachers in our Bible schools. And you need to be praying that the Holy Spirit of God would fall upon your minister when he's preaching. So that he's not just simply battling in his own energy and strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that that word of God that is preached finds its way into hearts and that men and women are converted. We need to pray for that. We need to pray that God would bring peace. Because lacking that, we will continue to be distracted by those who disturb the peace, defile the holiness and destroy the testimony of God's church, the God of peace. 
Then secondly, the crushing of Satan. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is a prophecy, of course. And the apostle uh, seems to have had in his mind the Hebrew translation of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Back in Genesis 3, you remember the protagonist is Satan, just as he is here. Satan, who is, which is one of a number of names given to the archdemon, who is the primary adversary of God. That's why he's called the Satan, the adversary. He who is the leader of the angelic armies opposed to God. The opposite number of Michael that we met in the book of Revelation, who leads the armies of the unfallen angels those who worship and serve God and protect and defend God's church in the world. This one is the adversary, as I've said. The emphasis is always on the functional aspect. He is against us, and he's against Christ. Now, Dr. Boyce, in his commentary, refers us at this point to verse 19 for context. And he points out there that Paul encourages us to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And it's then that he segs into this narrative from Genesis 3. And uh, Dr. Boyce points out, of course, what, what is the devil offering Eve in back in the garden? Well, the knowledge of good and evil. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Paul wants them to know. He wants them to be wise. And he's just used that language, that language that is reminiscent of Genesis 3. Now he uses this other language that points us back into Genesis 3. Of course, our first parents weren't wise. They took the forbidden fruit. They didn't become more godly by doing so. They didn't know God better by doing so. They didn't become like God by doing so. They became more like Satan. And so Genesis 3 describes the fallout from the fall. The serpent is cursed. Death is introduced into the race. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Hard labor is the hallmark of daily work. For the woman in childbirth, there is pain in labor. For husbands and wives in marriage, there is a disruption to their relationship. Whereas the woman desires her husband, in the same sense as that uh, prophecy of Jesus in Song of Solomon chapter 7, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Woman desires her husband's desire and love. She seeks a lover and she finds a tyrant. He will rule over you. These are the marks of the fall. I was reading Matthew Henry this morning, and he says, these are all the indications of the fallen world that we live in. Calvin says, only when Christ comes does this start to be reversed. We're still in the process of reversing it. Does this start to be reversed? Instead of ruling over her, the new covenant man in Ephesians 5 gives his life for his wife. 
Well, in the midst of all of this judgment comes this promise. The Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. It's addressed to Satan. Here's what God says to him. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You notice the element of conflict. Dr. Boyce puts it like this. There are three levels of conflict. Satan and the woman between Satan's offspring, that is, those who follow him, and the woman's offspring, that is, those who follow in her faith. And three, finally and most importantly, between Satan and Christ. Between Satan and Christ. Uh, Robert Haldane has a commentary in Romans that's published by Banner of Truth. And Robert Haldane was a, uh, an aristocrat who gave up uh, his uh, main residences in near Stirling in Scotland to become an evangelist. And eventually he settled in what he thought was a, a relatively plain and small house. You would regard it as quite big and palatial, but anyway... Uh, but he founded that he established a church in Airdrie where I was the minister for a while, so he's a predecessor of mine. And uh, in his commentary on Romans, Haldane says that Satan is the great disturber of the peace. He reminds us of the language of Isaiah, the wicked are like the troubled sea. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. He is the accuser of the brethren. He seeks to deceive the saints and distract the churches. What Paul has just described is an example of his work. While the deceptive talk of the troublemakers threatens the harmony and unity of the church, while he seeks to cause scandal in the community of the church, the troubles of the church are part of the latter-day onslaught of Satan, the father of lies. And there are individuals and leaders in the church who can unwittingly make themselves instruments of Satan. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11. Such are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's not strange if servants of his disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So God, who is peace, intervenes on behalf of his people. God's peace allows no appeasement of the devil. Very often as you study, if you study uh, history and you study especially the history of politics around periods where war has come, usually it is the appeasers who actually in the end allow war to happen or make room for war to happen. But God is not an appeaser in this war. And so, when we look at the original promise made to Eve, Adam 
called Eve the mother of the living. Before there were any living other than the two of them, he calls her the mother of the living. When God makes this promise to her, that's what he thinks about. He takes the promise seriously as she does, and he thinks about those who are coming down the line who will believe what they believe and who will find the eternal life that they have lost. And as you read the promise given to Eve, you discover that the seeds are both many and one. The one who would be injured, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And that is fulfilled as Jesus, as uh, Eve's singular seed, Jesus, comes and takes his place on the cross. You read the language of the Bible about that event. He is wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. At the cross, we see Messiah bruised. The unrelenting warfare that has raged from the time of Adam has intensified and has reached its nadir, that is, its lowest point, in the crucifixion of the Messiah. And yet the cross is the decisive victory over Satan and all his works. Jesus breaks Satan's power to deceive the nations. Jesus breaks Satan's power to cripple us with our guilt. Colossians chapter 2, God forgives us all our sin, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having destroyed the powers and authorities, he made an open spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The resurrection of Jesus spells an end to that. But the promise to Eve has a second victory, the victory of Christ on the cross, a second victory. And that's the thing that Paul points to in our text. Christ, having defeated sin, Satan, and death, will give us the victory. I like these words of John Stotts. God will throw him under our feet. God who crushes his head will throw him under our feet that we may trample on him, on Satan. This is the prophecy of Psalm 8. God says that he will put all things under his feet. That is Christ. We know that from Hebrews, Christ's feet. But you don't get Christ without his people. You don't get the head without the body, which is the church. You don't get Christ and without his members. And so in Hebrews, it goes on to say, and God will put all things under your feet. Christ may crush Satan's head, we will trample on his body. 
Now, what that means is, I think, that there are going to be local interim victories in our ongoing battle with Satan and all his works. There will be these partial crushings of him as he loses battles. The 19th century saw the great expansion, growth of the, the missionary movement right across the globe. That was, a, that was a great period in which Satan got one in the eye. We've already seen that Gentile people have been saying Jesus is Lord and confessing him and finding eternal life through Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing we see in the text is the gift of grace. What of the meantime? What of me today? Well, for me today and you, there is a blessing. Here it is, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. To call Jesus Lord is to call him the God of Israel. To stand in the grace of God is of the essence of salvation. Something we may experience right now because we've been justified by faith, put right with God, by faith alone, in Christ alone. In chapter 1, the grace is called the grace that comes from God our Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, he speaks of God's love and Christ's love without distinguishing one from the other. The love of God is the love of Christ. The love of Christ is the love of God. There is only one God. It's God's love. And since the grace of Christ is the undeserved and triumphant love of God acting in and through Christ, by which and in which God gives himself to us to be our saving God, this blessing can be put in these words. God in Christ be with you. What does that mean for me today, for you today? It means that Christ has an an inestimable supply of grace to meet every need you have throughout this earthly life and pilgrimage. My grace is sufficient for you. He has his grace is like an impenetrable wall preventing the saints protecting the saints and preventing Satan from destroying you. The gates of hell will yield to you. You're walled apart with an impenetrable wall of grace. And thirdly, this grace is inseparable from Jesus himself in his resurrection life. Behold, I, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So when we hear the words, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, that's all you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything else but that. He's with you. Whether you're in church or out of church, 
He's with you in the battle. He's with you from day to day. He's with you in your decisions. He's with you in your relationships. He's with you in your ill health. He's with you on your deathbed. He is with you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in your great mercy you would give us victory over the various lies and deceptions of the evil one. We pray for those who, Lord, are struggling with their faith or have no faith at all. We pray that today you would make yourself known to them in a way that surprises them and in a way that brings them into the light of your knowledge. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.